Welcome to the Meatful Syrup Show. We're on season three, and this is kind of our soft launch. Uh, first episode, you notice there is no beautiful music that you may be accustomed to. The original tune might be coming back, or we might have a new tune. Just the whole intro slot is wide open, and we're going to uh, be revamping it uh, for for next week's for, uh, episode. So I, 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 I will to tell it. you why. Well, part of it is because I didn't have time to do it, but the other part is because we have all of Season 2 sponsors on there, and we didn't do any season three fundraising, so uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons why we haven't got the the splash sheet already. So, so this this season is uh, sponsor free. I don't know how you say that, uh, but we will be. Uh, we're very thankful for all the sponsors we've had in the past. We'll still uh, keep those great relationships, but we also um, have the uh, freedom or liberty to maybe uh, go where we might not have gone before. Because uh, of uh, basically, guys, you're getting the shirts off our backs. That's yeah, getting the shirts off your back. You notice I'm I'm in like non-sponsored clothes. That's, that's <laughs> a, I actually get to, I get to wear wear my own clothes again. So, uh, anyways, and you'll also notice a new addition. Uh, not that she's unfamiliar with our show and has been on many times, but we have a new host with season three, and that's uh, Tiffany. Want to say hi to everyone? Hello, welcome to my attic. <laughs> That's right, and anyone who follows Tiffany not only knows uh, her as the one tar, but she also has a great new blog. Do you want to tell us real quick about the new blog? Oh, the blog I haven't posted to for a while? Sure. Yeah, to put uh, pressure on her. So, that's great. Steve and I recently purchased our very first home, and it is a 90-year-old home in Portland, Oregon, and it's tiny and quirky and has a lot of uh, interesting problems. So I have a blog called homeiswherethebloggis.com and I write posts about all the various projects that we're doing in this house. And yeah, because of Gen Con and Origins, we haven't really done any projects uh, for a little bit. So there's no been some posts, but I will, I now feel the pressure. So <laughs> there you go. So if you are interested in DIY home stuff or just want to read silly stories about Steve and I hurting ourselves in or tearing out our house. Like, yeah, there you go. Home is where the blog is .com. There you go. So check that out. Uh, you'll notice also um, Dylan's not here. Tyler's not here. They will be popping in and out um, throughout uh, the season. Uh, we also have uh, Brian Lewis helping sometimes with hosting and Suze will be here as well. Uh, so that you'll see a variety of us kind of popping in and out. I, for instance, for example, will be away next week. Um, and I think Dylan is around, able to pop in real quick. I'd love to yeah, have is, him pop is. in while he has a second. Uh, for anyone who's curious, he's still uh, in Paris and running around the world uh, solving all the world's problems. And uh, he also has a neat video series that he's going to be working on. So we want him to pop on real quick and mention... Uh, the series that he is going to look into doing. Oh, there's that beautiful oh, like, man. Oh my god, your beard. Wow. <laughs> you just, whenever I think my beard is starting to do okay, I am, I am okay. broke down. Dylan, you realize that Tiff's the one in Portland, right? Not you? <laughs> <laughs> that is like a complete Portland beer. Where's your beard? Oh, you wow. I'm in Paris. Come on, yeah, I, I swear. I was just eating a baguette a second ago. I was greeting people with the traditional Parisian way of saying I surrender, which is bonjour. 
<laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's, I, I've been doing all the Parisian things. Okay. So, Dylan, real quick, while we have you here, I was just mentioning that you have a new series that you're starting to uh, put together to tinker with. We're still figuring out the details, but why don't you give a little hint to people so that they can uh, start looking forward to this new side series that we're going to have, uh, have you make. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. I love war games, of course, and I'm really interested in getting uh, you know, more and more uh, experience, actual kind of frustrating, interesting decisions in war games without result, res, you know, resorting to hex maps, chits, and, and CRTs. It's uh, it's something that's a bit of a passion of mine, like attempting to resolve warfare in interesting and new ways in games. And I just so happen to be a short walk away from one of the premier uh, military museums in the world. So uh, just being in such close proximity to all this history is a wonderful opportunity to kind of get out there and maybe take a little bit of video and uh, we'll see. I'm still still conceiving. I've got all the, these plans I want to put together. Uh, I'll be in Ottawa in a couple weeks, so I might be able to take some pictures of tanks at the, uh, at the Ottawa uh, military or at the Canadian War History Museum. There's a lot of tanks there. It's awesome. Uh, touch the metal. It's really good. Um, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be an interesting little side project. We'll see, we'll see how deep down the rabbit hole it takes me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. As, as uh, you guys know, I'm sort of in between Daryl and Dylan in, in terms of my love of war games. I grew up on war gaming, and I love it. Not to the extent that Dylan... Dylan actually went to school to study that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, and, you know, Daryl likes it, but not at the same grunge level. I'm just, to be Dylan. honest, I just have very little experience in it. So it's intriguing, but I just... I'm a noob. Yeah. So Aww. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and another little side project that we're doing. So you guys might have noticed that uh, Daryl and, and Dylan and I and, and all the rest of the people who are involved in creating media for board game industry and hobby and whatnot tend to like to do a lot of little side projects. Like this is Tiff's side project from a regular gig, right? Daryl does Nerd Syrup with staff. Um, Dylan's going to do that war game thing. And what I'm looking to do this year is uh, do a board game mentorship. So part of the GAC, part of the Game Artisans of Canada's philosophy, uh, and, and Dylan and I were talking about this a little while ago, is that we always give advice for free. Um, and that, that is a very big core belief of the Game Artisans, is that we want to help people make good games better and get them to a position where maybe they'll be signable or whatever, right? And so I've decided this term to do a <coughs> board game mentorship um, and document it online with somebody, I don't know who yet, um, taking them through the game design process uh, from, they have to have an idea, they have to have some prototype stuff kind of ready to go and send me whatever they have and then I will help them work through the problems. Kind of like being a Jiminy Cricket, I guess, right, on the shoulder. Anyways, that, that'll come to fruition over the next little while. So keep a lookout, all you Meeple Syrup people. If you are an unpublished designer, have never got anything published before, you're the type of person I want to work with. If you're dedicated, uh, if you have a regular schedule where we can keep to some sort of weekly or bi-weekly thing, uh, it'll probably be bi-weekly, monthly, actually, give you guys a little bit of time to develop your game. Um, and then I don't, I'm not asking for anything. That's that's it. That'll it'll be you know a little hobby prep project. Anyway, so there we go. Um, Dylan, did Juno have something to tell us? Doesn't Juno have something to tell us? I wish that Juno was here because she kicked my butt a couple days ago at Space Fleet. 
But anyway, yes, she rammed me on my side shield, knocked it down, and then critted me and blew up the whole damn ship. It was really embarrassing, but she was happy about it. But at any rate, speaking of children, I have to go get them. And ah. it being dinner time in, in Paris, I really have to love you and leave you, but thank you very much for having me pop on. Next week, I'll be somewhere completely different. We'll see if I can get in there, but uh, I'll be kind of um, an ephemeral presence here and there. All right, Dylan. Uh, au revoir. We'll Thanks later. a lot. We'll au see revoir. you all. Bye. Bye. All right. So with that, obviously, we need to jump into our traditional set of inviting our guests onto the show. As Sen brings them in, I'm just uh, going to give a little... Uh, intro for each. Uh, some of you may already know John Gilmore, my brother from another mother. Uh, he is the designer of many great games, and I'm not going to bother listing them all. Uh, I'm sure they'll come up as we chat. But uh, John Gilmore's most recent upcoming game that everyone's very excited about, Wasteland Truckers. So I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that. And then we also have Stefan Alexander, uh, my friend from the region. He's actually part of the the Game Artisans of Canada, which we were mentioning before, and uh, is part of my local chapter in the Kitchener-Waterloo region. And we're excited that he's here, and he actually has a game on Kickstarter that I'm hoping we'll get some time to chat about, and that is Area 51. So I just uh, thank you both for being here, and uh, make sure your, your mics are on mute and all that jazz. And I'm going to jump right into things with John Gilmore first and say, uh, you know, I, I mentioned Wasteland Truckers, but that's one of many games that I know you're working on and it's coming out. Give us a quick snapshot of uh, what what is to be expected of games coming out from you in the near future. Well, um, I've got probably 13-ish games with publishers right now um, that'll be out you know, between now and I'm working on stuff that'll be 2018 you know, or 2019. So I've got a pretty good spread of stuff. Um, should be hopefully early next year. Um, Heroes and Tricks will be on the market. That was kickstarted um, a couple months ago from Pencil First Games, which is a play anywhere, uh, really quick, quick-taking game. Um, like you said, Wasteland Express should be out hopefully quarter four this year or quarter one next year. Um, we had a few little difficulties that we're trying to uh, – catch up with um, in the production uh, side of things. Um, and I don't know if I have that much other stuff that's been announced yet that I'm allowed to talk about. Uh, oh, uh, I've got a kind of weird area control deck building game um, with action. That's play. always a selling point. Yeah. Oh, that one. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that is a selling point for that one because that's a weird game in general. That's like this long-ass title. Yeah. And it's a sandboxy type of game, which is not my favorite type at all. But this one intrigues me. Yeah, so it's it's kind of a mix of area control and deck building, but the deck building isn't traditional deck building um, because uh, you're in charge of an army and you don't have a lot of control over like who you recruit. So uh, it's more focused on how you deal with the people that you recruit, whether you train them or you just kill off the you know, the weaker people in your army to make sure that you can focus on the stronger people. Um, and it has a morality system to it where different actions in the game drive you down one morality path or the other, um, and those will affect your play styles. Um, and it's a really non-traditional area control game, too. Um, and I 
don't know how much more I'm supposed to talk about it. I think that's probably the majority of it. I'm surprised Travis hasn't jumped on here to like give you the big text today. He's sending me messages telling me to stop talking already. <laughs> Awesome. Well, we also have Stefan Alexander here, who actually has a game on Kickstarter right now, Area 51. Um, so yeah, Alex, Alex or Stefan, I don't know if you want to pimp Area 51 or talk about something that you might have in the works or anything like that, but welcome. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, it's good to be on here. Um, well, yeah, I can talk about, um, maybe I'll talk about Area 51 a little bit first. Um, it's actually one of my, like it's designed from quite a while ago, so I think I started this in like, so maybe like 2007 or 2008, and I think I signed it in like maybe 2009 or 2010, but it was kind of like I kind of kept on redeveloping it, and the publisher would be like, okay, uh, maybe we'll publish it next year, but not not this year because we've got something else going on, and then I'd like, I'd rework it, and then he'd be ready, and then I'd say, well, okay, you know, can you hold on for a little bit longer because I'm just testing something out? So it kind of came to finally this point where, um, you know, I was really happy with uh, the game, the development, and it was doing exactly what I wanted to, and it was like, quarter of the total time that it started off with. It's like, you know, usually under 60 minutes now, but it started off as like this three or four hour thing, which maybe a lot of other game designers can identify with. Um, so, uh, yeah, so then um, uh, he wasn't sure actually if he wanted to just publish it or put it up on Kickstarter, but he thought maybe, you know, with the theme and uh, kind of long development time that it might be actually kind of neat to uh, to try it on Kickstarter. So uh, he did that. So I think there's, there's about 10 days left. It's a pretty modest... Uh, funding goal, um, I think another uh, kind of couple thousand euros needed to, to push it to that point. Yeah, but very important for our U.S. listeners, or, well, not listeners, well, viewers, um, it is shipping anywhere in the world. So even though it's uh, euros, you can still back it and get a copy. Exactly, and it's, it's actually, it's pretty, it's pretty good. Like, they, they actually have local fulfillment uh, in North America, so all the games come over in one shipping container. Um, so it's actually, you know, pretty reasonable um, shipping to uh, anywhere in the world for that. So, yeah, it should be good. And it's it's the, the style of game is kind of very much uh, kind of a, I won't call it like an old school Euro, but it really follows more of the kind of like early German school of design where it's a lot, it's very, very interactive, uh, pretty simple rules. You're really playing a lot against the other people in the game and the way that the game is structured really depends entirely on the people. There's... It's not so much like a you know optimization engine game as it is uh, you know here's a structure and you're kind of playing against the other people and the other people create the structure and you're kind of playing that rather than kind of playing an engine of the game itself which is maybe a bit more of the the modern Euro style. Cool. So um, oh, first of all, anybody watching, if you do want to interact, ask questions to any of the hosts or of course our guests feel free to uh, Twitter tweet at us or to interact on the YouTube channel and Daryl will be watching that. Tiff is watching the Twitter and I'm going to ask John a question. So going off of, of Steven's Kickstarter thing, you've done a lot of Kickstarters this year. John, how many? Like three or four? Uh, of, of my games? Or the yeah, 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 no, <laughs> that you've backed. We're talking like 94. No, <laughs> that, that have uh, been Kickstarted just this year. Uh, just one. Uh, Heroes and Truths is on Kickstarter. Oh, I thought some other ones were. Um, nope. Um, I, I've helped, you know, uh, a lot of friends and stuff promote theirs, but, um, Heroes and Tricks, and then last year, Vault Wars was on Kickstarter. So this year was right. my second experience on there. And, and, and Stephen's having, Stephen's having some issues right now with that kind of mid, 
mid-campaign uh, lag. Do you have any words of advice in order to, you know, bump that a little bit or how to get through that doldrum process? What do you think, John? I mean, that, that's definitely uh, rough. Um, I tend to be on the side of as little self-promotion as possible. Like, doing podcasts and stuff, I like to do those, but I'm not a big fan of, like, going on to the different Facebook groups and linking it or, you know, constantly posting it on Twitter. So I, I'm not – I guess I'm not a good example to follow because I don't like to over-promote um, my own projects. But I think, um, you know, it's it's a project that's exciting to me, um, Stephens is. So ha having – you know, trying – to get other people talking about it, um, whether it's, you know, uh, jumping in on discussions online and, you know, not necessarily promoting your game, but just being active, you know, looking for discussions where people are talking about your game and then answering questions and participating in those conversations. Um, and being, you know, being a part of those different communities like Reddit, um, I think those things help a lot just in general. I was just going to mention Reddit. That's my one black hole of fear so <laughs> you'll have to you have to school me in your reddit ways uh, uh, the, the biggest thing there is they have they have a strict rule called the 90 10 rule and it's that they feel like 90 percent of your post and content should be about other people or other things and 10 percent or less of your post and content should be about your projects yeah, and it, it's, real, it's really getting much better. I mean, there were a few kind of bad eggs that really abused that or, 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 or as trying to administer that rule had a difficult time of, of drawing some lines. But uh, the community has really come, grown and really uh, shown, uh, you know, some wisdom on how to, how to really encourage that you give more than you get, which I think is a philosophy that even uh, most of us uh, as designers appreciate and, mm -hmm. and understand because at the end of the day, we don't want it to be this giant, ugly, self-promoting machine. That's one of the f fun things about the show is uh, we get to ask designers questions, and it's sometimes hard to draw enough out of you because you want to promote others and encourage <laughs> other things, but yeah. we want a little focus on, on trying to hear about um, each other's designs and their, their process. So uh, on that note, I'm going to ask a question from the audience, from our YouTube viewership, which I'm really uh, thankful that we have a few people watching, uh, even with our new time slot. Um, and I'm going to ask this question from Madbona1 uh, for Stefan. And the question is, when designing games, what happens when you come up with another design you're more excited about? Do you drop the other or go for it or juggle them all? How many projects do you work on at the same time? Could you give us a little bit of, you know, how do you manage uh, different designs? What do, you, what do you do with all the different ideas? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think every game designer is going to probably have a slightly different answer, but there's also going to be maybe a lot of similarities there. Um, so for me, I actually like having multiple designs on the go at the same time. If When you're working on something, you usually will in playtesting, identify problems with the game. I mean, so that, I mean, this is really the design process, is not coming up with a game, but it's testing it, figuring out what's broken, and then figuring out what to do with it. It's really hard to figure out what to do. And I have a playtest, and it's a bad playtest, and this happens almost every playtest, and I'm just not happy with it. And I'm like, I don't think this game's going to work. I think it's broken. I think the whole idea is bad almost every single time, especially at the beginning. Um, and then it's good to just take it 
put it on hold. I mean, even even for a few days, and you think about you just think about something else. You do another game, you do an earlier stage of another game, maybe you have another game at a very late stage and it just needs a little bit of development and you've been putting it off and then you kind of come, but that, that, that game, it'll bug you and it comes back and it, it comes up with another idea and you're like, okay, okay, maybe I can make this work and I'll test it out again. So I think that like that process is actually good of coming up with new ideas, wanting to test out new things, as long as you keep the other games in mind and keep coming back to them. I think it's actually a pretty healthy part of the design process. Yeah. Speaking of playtests that can go horribly wrong, John, uh, do you have any tips or recommendations for when you've had a playtest, or like maybe just a story of how you've had a playtest session that has gone horribly wrong and what you've done to maybe... Um, take the feedback from that or come back from that or anything along those lines? Basically, yeah. looking for a good story about a horrible playtest. Um, I definitely had a playtest um, on the superhero game that I've been working on for probably probably four years now. Um, it's kind of been my, my white whale game that I've never been able to find the exact... Uh, you know, until, until this last year, I've never been able to get it where I wanted it to be. Um, but I had a playtest where I made a big change in direction with the game, uh, reworked everything, got the game all set up, um, dealt out all the, you know, set, did the all the uh, opening hands and everything, um, and looked at the game state and just said, this is unplayable. Like, we couldn't even take the first turn because I missed some important thing. Um, but failure like that or, you know, any any kind of failure is an important part of the process. I'm a huge uh, believer in the fail faster philosophy, which is that you should get a game out of your head and onto the table as quickly as possible and then reiterate and reiterate as quickly as you can. Um, and because of that, onto the table as quickly as possible and then reiterate and reiterate as quickly as you can. Um, oh, I'm getting feedback from somebody. And because of that, Oh, okay. Somebody, yeah, somebody else's channel was giving feedback. <laughs> okay, um, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, because because of doing it like that, that it's really important to, you know, just accept that failure is going to happen, and it's take the good things out of that that you can. Okay, Stephen, uh, Stephen, sorry, I keep calling you Stephen. Uh, how about you? What do you do when a playtest goes really wrong? How do you know it's gone wrong, and what do you do about it? So. I guess you usually figure out, like, you have an idea in mind for how the game's going to play, right? Like, you, you always have a, a wish that you're like, oh, I really wish the game would feel like this. This is why you're designing it. And then it, it usually doesn't. So, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's not going to work or it's going to be boring or something that you wanted for the game isn't actually there. Um, so sometimes you look at it and you're like, yeah, maybe this is just a different kind of game. Maybe I want to optimize this piece instead. But more often you go, yeah, there's just, just something here that really isn't working. So... Um, I try to identify really accurately what it is before I fix it. That's the really, really hard part, is really being able to articulate, like, what is actually wrong with this? And it's often slightly different than you think it is. And once you identify the problem, then the solution can actually be really straightforward. Maybe you can come up with a bunch of different solutions uh, and kind of test them out. But I find that, that that's kind of the fun, easier part. The really hard part is actually, like, why is that like what is really causing the problem here and uh, like really accurately identifying what it is you don't like about it and this is when playing with other this one playing with other game designers is super helpful because if you're playing with other people they're great players and they can really help you like test a game but they can't necessarily but 
but let me say probably most of the really amazing feedback I've got in terms of like this is the game's problem right now has happened with playing with other game designers and it's so useful to be able to have that advice so if you can't ever get together with you know these, these gatherings of, uh, of game designers and have them test out your games if you do have games that are at that stage where you're like this this is a problem but I don't really know why and I can't put my finger on it then that's that's the best thing to do uh, to test those out. Yeah perspective is a huge part of, of any kind of designer iteration and getting other people's perspective I've always heard is super, super important. Yeah. Well, and talking more about that, I know uh, John has a great group of designers uh, that have been growing in his area and they've been really fostering that and encouraging each other's designs. But I also know you do some mass uh, playtesting. Can you tell us a little bit about A, developing that group of friends that are designers, but also tell us a little bit about the steps of setting up this mass playtesting that I know you're a big advocate for and think a lot of publishers should get into. Um, yeah, it, you know, probably three, three years ago or so when we started, um, there were other people in my area who were interested in trying to design board games, but didn't really you know, necessarily know the steps to take or, um, you know, we're almost, you know, not necessarily afraid to do it, but just didn't have a good outlet for it. So it started with just, you know, three or four of us, um, you know, trying to meet up every other week um, just to give us, you know, little deadlines to meet and say, okay, well, we need to, you know, have our game ready two weeks from now. Um, and then it got to the point where, um, you know, it's kind of grown to, you know, between like somewhere around a dozen local people who are all interested in either designing or just want to help play test and give feedback. Um, and everybody kind of, uh, you know, start started somewhere and then, you know, has, has gone through the different progressions of, you know, learning the process to design. And it's nice to help foster that locally and, you know, help lift up the people that, you know, that I know that want to get into the industry too. Um, and then um, on the designer side, I feel like with the industry growing as quickly as it is um, and trying to meet the demand for new board games, one of the things that's trying to fall into the side is making sure that games are play tested properly. And, you know, any of us can play test our games a lot of times, um, but we're never going to get, we're never going to find all the problems with the game before it comes to market. And I think that it's important for uh, publishers to start, you know, fostering their own uh, systems where, you know, they get, you know, whether it's 20 groups, 50 groups, or 100 groups, you know, they get a lot of people like testing a game before it comes out and really, you know, try to work out all those little bugs that aren't immediately obvious, whether it's, you know, problems with the rules, because, you know, having 20 different groups learn the game from the rules is, you know, really good on top of having somebody that's a, qual a quality editor edit the rule book. They're going to find bugs that an editor doesn't necessarily see because they're, you know, learning the game, setting it up, and teaching themselves from the rules. And they don't have you as a designer there teaching them the game. Um, or, you know, things to, you know, looking for combos or broken things. You know, if you get four or five groups that just really enjoy breaking your game, 
you know, they're going to point out those, you know, really bad spots that we may kind of gloss over when we play it because they're not immediately obvious. Or we say, oh, well, people aren't going to do these things. So we just kind of, you know, put them under the table while we're designing. And then um, finding those is important because if it gets out to the public and it has those big glaring issues, then you know, it affects the longevity of a game. So I think I think that's important, and it's important for publishers that want to you know set it up that they start investigating ways to, and they reward their playtesters because I think that's important as well. Yeah, getting a lot of playtesters and a lot of different perspective of playtesters is huge. Also, blind playtesters. Yeah. Um, Stefan, we have a question from YouTube on this one. So Mad Bona One asks, uh, when playtesting, do you leave the players? I mean, this is really kind of a similar vein, but. Do you leave the playtesters to their own vices or guide them the whole way? How important is it to be hands-on or hands-off to get honest opinions, feedback, problem-solving, etc. when you are present? Uh, so I think, I think this, this comes back to a really good point where you really want to know as a designer what you want to get out of a playtest. So there's some playtests where you're like, I just I really need to know how this game feels. I need to know if it works right. And in those situations, you want to give as little feedback as possible. Um, with as little direction as possible um, in how to play the game. Sometimes you don't even want to participate. Um, sometimes you want to, you know, leave the room, or maybe you'll stand there and give them the rules. Or sometimes I'll, you know, maybe I'll teach the rules, but then I'll just kind of not participate in the game. Or sometimes I will play too. So it's it's you know different levels of kind of hands offness. Sometimes I'm like I really. I really think this works. I've tested this out a lot. I'm really, I think that the blue colors may be a little bit too strong. Um, so, you know, can somebody, maybe like one person in particular, can you just try to like really play a lot of blue and play it really strong and just, just you know, think of that ahead of time? Um, so sometimes you want to get them to do something in particular because you have a certain problem. Sometimes you just kind of want to see how it feels. So I think, I think it's really important to... I guess I do both of them, but you really want to know before the playtest and let everybody know what the goal of the playtest is, because there's totally different kind of playtests at different types, uh, different parts in the development. Yeah. Well, and actually I have a follow-up question on Mad Bonus One's question. So, I mean, and you both can answer this for sure, but like, as a designer, if you're playing the playtest with a group, do you ever... I mean, if it's a group that's maybe more capable or you feel they're more capable, do you ever just destroy them? Like, do you ever really play all out and you take advantage of the strategies and whatnot that you know? Because I like to joke when I do a lot of playtests that, like, oh, look, of course the designer is winning. But, like, do you guys do that on purpose? I just need to know. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, don't, yeah. I definitely don't because um, I'm, I'm bad at general in games. And, you know, I kind of realized it. I was playing games with my family this weekend. And, like, every single game we played, my mind was, like, 50% playing the game and, like, 50% thinking about the game and the things it's doing. So it's always hard for me to, you know, put 100% into winning the game. I'm, I'm, I'd much rather have fun so and make sure everybody else is having fun. But then I'm also focused on thinking about what the game is doing and how the people are interacting with it. Uh, so it's a little bit, uh, a little bit difficult for me, and I'm generally just bad at my own games. I mean, I, I've gotten exiled in Dead of Winter before I've even taken a turn. Um, so, yeah, that, that's I'm I'm just bad at games. <laughs> he he kind of is. He kind of is. I should play more games with you. John. <laughs> How about you, Stefan? 
You know, it's funny. I'll have like almost exactly the same answer. Uh, my experience has been also also the same. I'm like, I'm 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 bad at my games because I'm always thinking about like how's this game working, what's it doing, and then I'll do like a really weird move in the beginning, and somebody's like, oh look, designer's doing something. That must be a strategy. And I'm like, no no, don't follow what I'm doing. It's not a good idea. <laughs> I was actually paying attention to like some point balance, and I wasn't I wasn't really uh, didn't really know what I'm doing. And I also probably like like I like games. If there's like some tricky engine or something in the game, and there's like a solution to it, like I'm gonna have figured that out in designing it. So I just won't put something like that in there. So by definition, any game I design that's gonna interest me is gonna be one I can't figure out. And if I can figure something out, then I'm gonna change it until I can't figure it out. So it's almost like maybe it's possible, like for sure. I mean, I, there's parts in my games that can probably be solved and you know degrade into some optimization problem, but it's that, if that is the case, it's one I can't figure out um, because I'll just try to optimize it until it confuses me, and then, then I like it, and then I'll play it. <laughs> Good. Okay. So, John, I'm going to ask you a kind of controversial question that you and I have been bantering about online for a bit, uh, maybe last week it was or the week before. Mm -hmm. about uh, development and paid uh, playtesting um, because it's a thing that is mm -hmm. happening uh, more and more now these days. So companies like Coalition, Indie Game Alliance are offering very low-cost uh, paid playtests for designers, and, and they're, they're ostensibly for designers who can't find a group to playtest uh, or are not local or can't get out of the house, out of the house because of a disability um, things like that, um, and you are on one very hard side of the the line, correct? Or have you softened uh, since? I mean, I th I think sure there are definitely uh, times when it's beneficial. Um, like you said, if they're you know if they don't have access, though with the internet, there's really not an excuse for not having access to playtesters. You really just have to try. I mean, there's there's a subreddit of people that are just looking to play test games. Um, but I, I feel like there's there's a couple potential issues with it. One is even reading through some of the people that posted what their company's feedback forms look like. Mm -hmm. um, they like the the example playtest form said on it implemented fixes for X and Y problems and then play tested it. And that I don't want my playtesters implementing fixes for a problem. Right. Because A, I want to know what that problem is, and B, I want to verify that that's an actual problem and uh, you know, a learning issue with the rules or a rules explanation problem or just a misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. So to to see like to see a company like that implementing fixes for a game kind of bothers me because that's not something that anybody except for me or the publisher should be doing. Um, if they would like to say, here is a problem we experienced, here is a potential fix for it, would you like us to test it? That's different, but to have them implementing fixes on the fly worries me. Okay, um, unless, then, unless you were paying them for development. Exactly, unless that's, unless that's what you want out of it. Um, you know, also, I think there's always the question of when somebody's getting paid to do a job, if I make X dollars per playtest, then I may want to playtest as many games as I can in the night and not be able to give each one their full thing. I'm not saying that's what happens, and I don't want to come off on the side of disparaging them. 
but it's definitely a question in my mind whenever I pay for any service is do I think I'm getting my value out of it? Right. But there's a time and place for it, I'm sure. And companies that don't want to set up their own playtesting, you know, if they want to consider using a system like this. And, and like I said earlier, I think it is important to compensate your playtesters. You know, uh, traditionally, all of the playtests that I've uh, led, you know, if, if the players playtest enough times, then we give them, you know, a copy of the game and, you know, recognition in the rule book and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess my real question is it's partly with the playtest, but also with development. So um, you'll hear a lot of publishers talk about development, that they don't have a development budget or that they want the game fully developed when it comes to them. Mm. Um, thoughts on that, Jonathan, just because you're becoming very prolific now. How do you fully develop something yet still be able to get things out in a time? Or do you think that the games that you've sent out to publishers are actually technically fully developed? That's definitely a difficult thing, and I'm, and I'm sure, and we, we've all talked about it privately, like, the publishers that want a fully developed game, it's difficult. A, it's difficult for us time-wise because that last 10% of a game takes up 50% of the time that you spent developing oh, yeah, that game. at least, right? Yeah, at least sometimes longer. And that 10% is always the hardest. So, you know, one way that you soften that is by having 100 groups helping with that or you know, even having 20 groups help with it. Um, and I also think that, you know, Part of that should be on the publisher to make sure that's the best game possible. Um, because, I mean, we have, especially, you know, if it's something that you want to do full time, you have to keep up a certain volume of work to be able to make sure that, you know, you have the income to support you still doing this job. Mm -hmm. So if you're spending, if you, if you can only do one game a year because the publishers only want fully developed games, then that's probably not a sustainable job. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the development discussion is is a rich one, and we're going to definitely uh, even focus some episodes on that because, and really circle around to that because de design and development is a is a pretty fluid discussion, and that's really one of the mm -hmm. main goals of our show. So I love it. Um, on kind of on this topic, I'm curious uh, to talk to Stefan about he. he You've mentioned Area 51. You're very involved with the, the design, and it sounds like the development process, and even the Kickstarter. Um, uh, in contrast, you have King Chocolate with Mayfair Games, and I got to see that game through the design process as well. I, I wonder if you could kind of contrast the experience of working with maybe a quote-unquote bigger publisher like Mayfair and your involvement with the project in contrast to something like Area 51 where the publisher has included you. Yeah, so it was, it was um, they were kind of two, uh, you know, polar opposite experiences. And I'd like say, you know, they, they were both good experiences, but they were both very different. So Mayfair obviously is a, is a you know, bigger, um, very established company and they have a, a kind of a process. So basically you, you, know, you take the design, you, you send it to them and then it's kind of, you know, their design. Um, I had given them, you know, some, some questions and some things to look into and they actually, you know, for the period of time that the game was, you know, signed before it was produced, which was like maybe, maybe like a year and a half, two years, something like that. Um, there really wasn't very much communication in there. So I check in with them and they're like, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's in the queue. It'll, it'll, it'll come out sometime. And, um, 
I, one of the times I emailed them, they're like, oh, yeah, we're just about to go to print on it. Do you want to read through the rules? And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. I, and I, the art was done, and basically everything was done, and I kind of gave a final check through the rules and just a couple of very minor things. But they basically didn't change anything. I guess they ran it through their um, internal you know, development and testing, figured out it was okay. They, they changed one one minor kind of corner case of a rule, and uh, and that was it. But there really wasn't much involvement in the design or development, or uh, you know, they, they asked me to read through the rules, um, but that was really just because I emailed them at that particular time. So it was very, it was very hands off. On the other hand, it was kind of a positive experience because I didn't uh, like they didn't really change much anyway. If they had gone through and decided there was a bunch of changes, um, you know, maybe they would have checked them with me, maybe not. But it's it's pretty, like I said, it was pretty. Pretty hands-off and distant, but also you know very professional, and they handled it just fine. Uh, in contrast to a smaller publisher, they asked me a lot of stuff. I mean, advice on a lot of different things. Um, you know, can we get this? Can we change this? Like mostly production type stuff. But you know, how many tokens do we need at this time? And um, you know, how do we? Uh, what, what kind of you know size of things do we really need? That many cards and you know, kind of like constant interaction. Uh, and I was I was involved in every step with the artist too, which was awesome. The publisher didn't even have to do that, but it was actually really fun to like, you know, communicate constantly with the artist, kind of look at his concepts, give feedback on the concepts. The publisher asked me to give feedback on particular kinds of things. So even though, I mean, it was, it was a little more work, um, but it was actually really fun to be part of the process. And I think that's probably a big difference um, that you might have between smaller and Larger publishers that you know, the larger publishers will handle it and they'll kind of take care of it, and you don't you don't really see much with it. But the, you know, they'll kind of do a good job of it. But some of the smaller publishers, it was actually really fun to be part of that process, um, even though it was work and that was uh, enjoyable. I don't know if uh, again these are the kind of the only two publishers I've worked for right now, and um, I think uh, you know the, the rest of you have probably worked with a lot more. But maybe maybe your experience in publishers is similar between larger and smaller ones. Um, yeah. Go ahead, John. Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, with Pandasaurus and Wasteland Express Delivery System, I mean, they're a pretty good-sized publisher, Only even though there's only two people uh, that, you know, work at it full-time. Um, but it's been good being involved in uh, the entire process, like you said, working with the artist and, you know, bouncing feedback, um, graphic design, everything else. Um, and then some smaller publishers... You know, can can border on either micromanagement, and it's weird how like sometimes the corporate publishers do the same thing. So I, I don't think it's necessarily a large or small publisher distinction. It's just different project management styles, which is interesting. Yeah, I don't have any experience from the design standpoint, but I have heard very similar feedback for for different publishers. Like smaller ones, it's tend to. Um, you tend to be a little bit more involved, so I definitely have heard that. Um, but so I want to ask, I want to kind of go back to the playtesting topic um, because I do have a different perspective from you all when it comes into the games industry. I've done some playtesting, um, but I'm more of a reviewer and uh, you know just a general. I don't know. I just like to play games. I don't necessarily design them. So anyway um, so John that's changing that's changing uh, it'll change it'll change yeah 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 <laughs> um, John what is it when you talk about we've talked about like paid playtesters and the and the kind of feedback you want from reddit but what do you what are you looking for like what is the most valuable feedback that a playtester can give you if it's like a blind playtest like if you're sending a game to them like what can they do or what have playtesters done in the past that you've just 
loved. I mean, in, in my opinion, the most valuable feedback is always negative feedback. Um, I really, it's, it, to me, it's very little value um, to have a playtester tell me what they loved about the game um, because I should already know what people are going to love about the game and be focused on those things. Um, but I want to hear about what didn't work for them, what, you know, what things didn't make sense, what did they just not like about it, things like that. Um, so I really try to focus on making sure that playtesters uh, feel comfortable saying negative things about your game because a lot of times that's a difficult thing to do. Um, it's, it's very difficult to be honest with somebody um, and knowing that they, you know, you're probably going to hurt their feelings a little bit. <laughs> and, and, you know, we, with my local group, like that was a thing. Um, <laughs> one of the, one of the guys still talks about uh, that we were playing a newer version of uh, his rock band game he'd been working on and we got like halfway through the first round and I just kind of ground everything to a halt with a discussion about like what wasn't working and what was broken in it and the problems and he's like he felt really bad afterwards but then when he thought about it he's like oh yeah all those things were problems I just didn't want to admit it at the time so I think negative feedback's the best and most valuable mm -hmm. I'm just going to give a quick shout out to uh, Beth Sobel. Today marks her uh, 13th anniversary. Beth's one of our favorite artists on the show, so happy anniversary to Beth. Um, St uh, Stefan, would you, what do you think is the best feedback? I know you've talked about your, your inclusion with GAC and things like that, but from a playtest standpoint in general, are you also that give me the negatives, give me the negatives, and I'll solve them? And you're an engineer, so that's kind of what you do, but... Yeah, I think... Um... So it's good. I definitely like to encourage that. And sometimes if there's somebody I know really well in the play test, you know, I'll ask them, like, hey, can you just, like, I know this part is a problem. Um, can you just, like, criticize this at the very end? And it kind of, like, opens it up so that everybody will do that, too. Um, so they kind of know it's okay because you need that, you kind of need that first person to go do it. So it's 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 really useful. You know, I, I think I, mean, I think every designer maybe has strengths and, and weaknesses. Um, and one of the things that I, I think I... I one of the things I kind of struggle with the most is, um, and this is Sen, this is kind of what you and Jay keep pushing, which is like kind of find the fun in the game. And that, I mean, that it makes a lot of sense, but I'm really, really good at finding mechanical problems in the game, right? Really good at finding balance and other stuff like that. I can I can make a spreadsheet of it. That's that stuff is like it's fun. <laughs> he's, really, he's really, really, really good at spreadsheets. We have a co-design actually together that's. Yeah, it's a, big, it's a very, very complex question. <laughs> um, so I, I can do that, but, you know, finding the stuff that's really fun, like what what is it for each playtester where they're like, this is the part that I really love, and the rest of it, like, I did it, but did this particular action was really fun, and I'm like, oh, wow, I never really thought of that. I was kind of trying to do this thing, but I, I didn't really think of that as being fun. So, I mean, it, for me, just because it's probably a weakness of mine to, like, identify that thing that is really fun in games because it's really you can't analyze it you can't come out with a spreadsheet there's no number that will tell you the fun so if, if people can talk about that and tell them what they love that was fun and the kind of thing that maybe sucked the fun out of it for them that's that's the thing i'm always looking for not necessarily because it's the most important thing but because it's probably the thing i'm, I'm weakest at naturally uh, yeah the sec the 
That's a very interesting. I've never heard that one of, is of looking for the fun um, from playtesters, but it's. I think it's one that playtesters are generally more willing to share. Um, like what John was saying, where he doesn't necessarily want playtesters to say what they enjoyed, and and you're kind of almost countering that. So it's interesting. I would say I would recommend based on this feedback from you guys. I would recommend if you're a playtester or you're playtesting for somebody. Um, ask them what they're looking for before you start playing the game. Ask if they want you to try and break it. Ask if they want you to pay attention to like sticky things or certain stuff like that. You can always ask. It's always a two-way conversation between you and the designer. Um, don't don't be. I mean, like there's a saying that's like the worst that they can say is no, and there's it's always better to ask than to not ask. So don't feel like you're asking too many questions. Don't ask. Don't feel like if you're a playtester. We've heard it from the designers themselves. They want you <laughs> to, to have a conversation with them. So mm -hmm. Engage yeah. in the dialogue, please. Yeah. Great great advice right there from Tiffany. Um, I'm, I'm going to jump back, actually, John. Um, most of our discussion has been focused on the playtester side of things, a little bit with the, with the publisher, and I'm curious if you could share a little bit about some of your positive experiences with working with developers and publishers and where they, you know, after we've done the playtesting, after we've submitted a game, and they're happy with, you know, the part that you've been involved with, can you describe a little bit of the relationship of letting go of your baby and and how they work. You know, some involve us, some don't. Maybe describe some of the positive experiences that you've had along the way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's very difficult sometimes because you spent so much time with this game. Um, and there are definitely publishers that are 100% hands-on, and once you give them the game, you'll see it again in a year to a year and a half when it's done. And you're, and you're not involved in that process at all. You're not involved in that final development. Um, and the finished product is, you know, sometimes significantly different than what you handed off to them. Um, but I think, you know, letting go of it is important and having a good relationship with the publisher and feeling, you know, uh, trusting them. You know, just like any relationship, you know, having the discussions beforehand and feeling, you know, trust that they're going to do a good job of making, you know, your baby into something that people are going to like um, is important. But then on the other hand, the, the publishers that, you know, involve you heavily are a lot of fun too. Um, and it's, it's this weird balance of, like, trying to find the right mix for what, you know, what you want out of your relationship and what you want, you know, how you want the process to go. And having that discussion early on in, like, the contract, you know, negotiation and things like that is important so that you don't end up in a relationship that you're not happy with. All right, so uh, we're on to our last questions. And uh, I'm going to actually ask uh, Stefan, um, because you've never been on the show, have you? No, no. First time. Wow, this is shocking. Uh, well, what advice would you give other designers? Uh, and we'll, we'll give you newer designers. Uh, we always do kind of last question, some modification of this. But I'm curious, what advice would you give newer designers getting into the hobby? And let's say they are designing on the side. Like they're just dabbling, they're just getting into it. They have a full-time job, but they have a few ideas and maybe 
uh, what would you say to that person um, to help them sharpen their skill set? Yeah, I think, probably I think my first big thing, because this, this was my big realization that kind of took my design to the, well, not to the next level, to the level where I wasn't really designing uh, to kind of where I was, is this expectation that the design process is sitting there with a the game, playing it with a bunch of people, finding out what's broken, and like, you know, really it, it, playing that broken game, figuring out and identifying what's broken, and then really struggling and working to fix it. So that is design process. The thing where you come up with an idea, you write the rules, you make the components, you kind of envision in your mind everything, that's not the design process. That's like setting up for the design process. So sometimes people will like think they're designing a game when they like write the rules and come up with a concept and play it a couple times themselves and uh, and then kind of be really discouraged the first time play and it doesn't work. So I, I always try to point out that the design process is playing broken game and identifying what's broken and doing it. And all of the all of the cool concept work is isn't it's not really design. That's like setting up for the design. And then and then people kind of understand what what the process is about and then they know um, kind of know where to focus the work and not to get discouraged when things don't work because that's this kind of the point of it. Oh, we can't hear Sen. Oh, Sen's mic's not working. Oh, no, it's on. It's on. Oh, there we go. There you Sorry, go. That, was, that was my, my cough button. Ah, um, nice. Up my lung button. Um, John, it's your time. You got like a minute to shine. What are you going to say to the world, John? What are you going to say? Go! Uh, I, <laughs> you know, I was, I was expecting this question. I'm trying to think, man, I've been on the show a bunch of times, and I don't remember what advice I've given all those other times. So it's probably going to be redundant stuff. It's okay. Uh, you assume everyone's watched every episode. <laughs> and redundancy is actually good. Um, you know, I think I think one of the most important things is play test, play test, play test until you think that you're done, and then hopefully play test some more until you realize that you're not. Um, you know, if you haven't played the game enough times that you know, not necessarily sick of it, but you're ready to move on, then you probably haven't play tested enough. Good so, advice. Yeah, play, play test as much as you can. Great stuff. Well, again, I just uh, I want to say thank you, uh, obviously, to Sen and Tiffany for co-hosting this with me. And also to our guests, I want to say thanks to John and Stefan for being with us for Season 3, Episode 1. Thanks Yay. to our viewers. I also want to give a few shout-outs. Uh, one, uh, a big thanks to David Tomei, who has... Uh, audio filed all of our episodes on iTunes so if you're interested in listening to the show or you know listening back to stuff that you might have missed or you like to listen at a different time uh, you can find our episodes on iTunes thanks to David we really appreciate all that he does to help the show in that regard also you can find us online the meeplesyrupshow.com and there's some information there and we're going to hopefully over time have some articles pop up there I know that's one thing that Sen's really excited about is um, curating some information uh, that will be posted there we'll also um, obviously you can find us on YouTube if uh, uh, we, we might explore other uh, ways to try to get the information to you. Uh, but, again, if you want to watch the show, they're on YouTube. If you want to listen, they're on iTunes. Uh, we're also going to do, uh, which is new this season, is for our after show, we're going to do just the hosts. And so the, the hosts uh, are going to have a little discussion time about the episode and what they learned and what they 
noticed and what they would add to the discussion. So our after show is going to be a little bit uh, more uh, discussion from the host, and the host will rotate uh, different weeks. So check out the after show as well, where we have a, a quick, shorter dialogue about just kind of recapping the experience, recapping the show, and adding a few um, a few cents to the discussion. And then also uh, a new thing is we're going to try to post our schedule well in advance, so don't be surprised if in the next week you'll see our entire uh, fall-winter schedule posted. There will be some missing spots, which maybe get filled by you. Uh, our listeners, because uh, we need uh, more guests. So if you are willing and interested, we're going to try to have our topics up there. Uh, let us know if if you might be uh, willing and able to add to that discussion if you think you have uh, some insight that would be good for those episodes. Uh, and you can contact me uh, directly, and I do uh, the, the show scheduling. So uh, with all that said, uh, thank you. Have a great day. Keep designing great games. We look forward to playing your games soon. Cheers. See you guys. No song. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>